Hi, I'm LC, and I'm a storyteller. I'm a passionate chemist who loves to explore and tell stories about how chemistry can change the world. And I'm Danny, and I'm LC's spirited chemistry co-host. I love to bring high energy and positivity to my chemistry, but also my life. Welcome to the Farm to Table podcast. We're two chemists working at the pharmaceutical company Merck in the U.S., also known as MSD everywhere else in the world except Canada, the U.S., and its territories. And this is a podcast where we'll tell you stories about the people and the science behind the papers published by our chemistry group. Each week we'll pick one to two papers that we recently published and introduce you to the key people behind it and also ask them to give you a unique insight into the story behind it. Today, we are here with Caleb Heathcock to learn a little bit more about his paper on nickel-catalyzed cyanation of heteroaryl bromides using DABCO trimethyl aluminum as a soluble reductant, which was published, we believe, at the end of 2022 in Orglet with um, a fabulous Merck Future Talent intern, Geraldo Duran Camacho. Caleb, welcome to the Farm to Table podcast. Thanks, Danny and Elsie, for having me. So, Caleb, uh, before we get into the heart of the paper and start to talk shop, uh, could you give us a little uh, background about yourself, who you are, where you're from, and what you do at Merck? Um, I'm Caleb Hathcox. I'm a process chemist at Merck. I'm from Alabama. I did my undergraduate degree at Auburn University uh, before moving to UT Austin for graduate school where I worked with Steve Martin on total synthesis and organic catalysis. Then I moved out to Caltech to work with Brian Stoltz as a postdoc on transition metal catalyzed reactions before moving back across the country where I've now landed at Merck and Rahway. And I've been in the process chemistry department alone um, for the almost the past five years. Um, mainly being responsible for everything from long-term route scouting to scale up of processes to manufacturing scale. Very good. So Caleb, I think you're the first person I've ever met that's from Alabama. I was going to say uh, the same thing. Yeah. So so I'm interested. And then you went to Auburn too. So like how real is this Auburn-Alabama rivalry? Like is that like the football thing? Is it as crazy as it looks like on TV? Oh, it's, it's everyone's the – you know, second most important day behind probably Christmas down there. I mean, everyone's <laughs> waiting for the Auburn-Alabama game. <laughs> That's crazy. I'm always fascinated by it every year. I mean, just college football in general, I find fascinating having grown up in Canada where it's not really a thing. But, yeah, we're going to have to follow up on that because I'm interested oh. in learning more. <laughs> yeah. Talk to me anytime. I was in the marching band there oh, for four years. Yes. So I was. What did you play? Oh, I played trumpet. So I was hey. part of that. You know, okay. marching on the field and everything. That's awesome. You know, a rivalry is fierce when cars are flipped and like lit on fire. Like that's when you know. Wasn't there a tree thing? The... There's like a, they poisoned the tree or something, right? Yeah, they they poisoned the trees oh. at Auburn. So I mean, like I don't know if you're into some investigative journalism. I mean, I suppose you could follow up on the chemicals that they used to do. That. That's not cool, though. I don't know. It's like too far. Oh God, that's cars. Crazy. Okay, trees. Oh, I digress. Man. Yeah. All right. All right. I'm bringing us back in. I'm bringing us back in. So, Caleb, first, uh, congrats. Uh, you were recently promoted to associate principal scientist. Thank you. And uh, but one of the things we like to um, 
ask um, folks like yourselves, you know, when they join us on the pod, because a lot of our audience is graduate students, postdocs, or like new professionals, um, you know, I, I was going to ask you, like, give us a sense of like one big thing that you had to adapt to working in an industrial environment when you first transitioned, um, you know, from your postdoc to Merck. It's a good question. For me, I think it was, I mean, obviously you're collaborating in, you know, the academic sense, but it's generally with like other synthetic organic chemists. Um, for me, it was switching into how to be most effective here in collaborating. And with that, I mean, you're so used to in academics doing most things yourself. I mean, you're taking your NMRs, you are doing your own structural elucidation, perhaps even developing your own LC methods. And it's how to and when to reach out to all of the resources and collaborators that we have here at Merck to find the best person to collaborate with you to be the most effective at your job. And that's, I mean, it took some learning curve there because I mean, I hesitate to use the word control freak, so to say, but like you're so used to like doing everything yourself and to then branching out to delegate. Um, it, it took some learning curve and then continuing to improve on just like how not to make that transactional, but even to make it, you know, so that both members of that collaboration are then, you know, getting something out of it. Yeah, that resonates. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, graduate school is very structured, like one student, one project. And so sometimes exactly. um, there are opportunities to collaborate, but it's two students that each have their own project and there's some overlap, whereas the interdependencies we experience on a day-to-day -day basis are pretty transformative and I think keep us on the steep part of the learning curve, which is, you know, one of the reasons that it's exciting. I think so. I mean, certainly it's become like one of the better parts of the job versus, you know, just tackling one student, one project, but there's a learning curve there, but that's for sure. Cool. Well, thanks for a little bit of background about yourself. Um, so without further ado, maybe let's get into um, the meat of the paper. Now, Caleb, before we jump into the chemistry, can you maybe give our listeners a sense of how you became interested in cyanations and maybe, um, you know, what motivated you to explore this new methodology? Right. So this came out of one of our programs here, um, wherein we thought that we would perhaps need to perform a cyanation ourselves on scale. And with that, turning to the literature, what you really see is that there are a ton of palladium catalyzed cyanation reactions. Um, but we would like to move towards, you know, more earth abundant metals, greener chemistry. And in doing that, we're basically charged with the task of can we perform this type of reaction without the use of palladium? Um, hence, what we'll be talking about today, a nickel catalyzed cyanation. At the time, there were only two nickel catalyzed cyanations using inexpensive uh, inorganic cyanide salts. And one of the big issues with these is that you either need stoichiometric additives or you need heterogeneous reductants like zinc powder. And when moving to scale, heterogeneous reactions tend to have lots of mixing difficulties. Um, when it turns to heterogeneous reductions like zinc powder, you have to deal with the surface impurities. How are you going to activate that zinc powder from the oxidized surface consistently on scale every single time? And so we turned our attention to, is there a better way to activate these nickel catalysts in such a way that perhaps we can perform, you know, cyanation reactions? So it was mainly moving away from palladium to earth abundant um, 
catalysts, which then led us to have to address other fundamental issues that came along with that move to a new catalyst system. Yeah, and I feel like even the plate, the, the very large body of palladium catalyzed cyanations still has a lot of the similar issues around like, you know, the heterogeneous reaction mixtures and, and sort of the challenges as well. And, and of course, handling cyanide on scale is, is always going to be tricky. And cyanide turns out to usually be a pretty potent poison for transition metals. So it feels like although most people would consider cyanations essentially a solved problem in transition metal catalysis, it just every time we have to run one, we learn new things about how to make these reactions better. And so you know, having having been there myself over ten years ago, trying to make a phenol that had a cyanide on it, I can definitely relate to to what you were saying there. Um, one of the interesting uh, observations that you had in the paper, you know, there's like this in depth investigation of this reaction specifically, and and obviously, I'm wondering, like, you know, so you you have to solve this problem for your project, and you have this presumably one substrate, right? So, you know, you sort of decided to pursue this sort of beyond that one substrate and sort of see how this would um, ultimately expand beyond other things. And I think a lot of people assume that in industry, we sort of solve the industrial problem and we move along. So tell us a little bit about the motivation to sort of pursue this beyond what was needed for the project and sort of develop a full methodology around it. You're right. So I guess that kind of comes into when you're looking in the literature, you know, we only found two you know, papers that we didn't necessarily want to use that we probably could have improved upon those to turn those into a robust process. Um, so when you when you find a discovery, I mean, I think that, you know, we're all scientists here. It's kind of part of your responsibility, right, to give the news back to the world of your discovery so that hopefully others can build on it or use it ourselves. For what we found here, it's pretty easy. I mean, you could just buy the pre-catalyst from Aldrich. You can buy the Dabco trimethyl aluminum, you know, from Aldrich or wherever you want to buy your chemicals from, and mix it together and under fairly mild conditions, put a nitrile on your molecule. So we thought that it would be, you know, a pretty good method just for academics, for potentially even just like discovery chemistry, just because it's so rapid. You don't need part of the goal of this is like you don't need like a proprietary ligand that you're going to have to do synthesis for just to put a nitrile on it. Um, you know, when you're just doing a cyanation probably just want to make the easiest route forward that we can. Um, and I think that's what part of what we found here. Um, the other part is that ultimately, you know, we do try to solve the problem um, for the pipeline, but, you know, it's not always, ultimately, we didn't end up having to use this process ourselves. So you've put in the work to develop the chemistry. We might as well, you know, take it on to you know, get something out of it and disclose it to the world since we're not actually going to end up using it ourselves in the manufacturing process. And I think that kind of segues into our next question is that sometimes when you're working on a project that doesn't necessarily make it to a process or that you think would be really beneficial for folks just to know about, it's a really good opportunity to leverage either a postdoc or we have a really robust um, internship program that's called the Merck Future Talent Program. So can you tell us a little bit about um, how that works and how it was working with Geraldo? Yeah, so how it worked here is we had the reaction that we'd found. Um, we had scoped it out a little bit to show that- like, That you know, it works. Really 
to work on one just substrate be, and yeah. then it's not just locked into that one <laughs> substrate we need. So once once we know that it could be expanded, I guess um, we, kind of right. We should take a tangent here. Our listeners yeah. should appreciate that that happens way more often than you think in process chemistry. Like you develop this really, what looks really useful reaction and you're like, great, this will solve a big problem. And it turns out it only works. On no scope. No scope. Zero yeah. scope. Yeah. You're like, yeah. So that sad. is certainly the, flipping on the, the, the blessing and the curse of process chemistry. So you'll make a reaction that does work really well on your one substrate that you have to make. But yeah, <laughs> goes both ways. Might not translate to discovery. Um, right, so we, we had this and we showed some initial substrate scope and you, from the Merck side, kind of put together a little, you know, proposal, if you will. Um, and then the future talents um, committee, who's also reviewing the undergrads and graduate students, you know, funds, if you will, your proposal with an intern, and then you could spend the summer mentoring them and, you know, teaching them, depending on which stage you get um, an undergrad into potentially getting them interested in pursuing graduate studies, if you will, to eventually move into chemistry. Or from my perspective, Geraldo, who was a third year grad student from Melanie Sanford's group, they get to see how industry chemists are working. Um, this is not anything I did as a graduate student or a postdoc. So, I mean, I came in more or less blind, just, you know, listening to Me industry too, talks. Me too, man. Yeah. Um, Geraldo has now spent, you know, we're, they're not in an intern lab, right? They're in hoods that are right next to the other process chemists that we're working in. So they are seeing what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. They're talking to us, um, fantastic networking opportunities and just seeing like what their future holds if this is the path that they want to choose and for Geraldo everything truly lined up I mean he was thinking already that he wanted to do process chemistry he ended up in a process chemistry lab his was already working on nickel catalyzed transformations with Melanie Sanford this now obviously slips right next to the theme of his thesis very easy sell into the story of his graduate studies so um, while everyone's may not line up as perfectly as a thing his did here. I think that everyone should apply because it's a great program for both undergrads and grad students. Totally agree. And also, I mean, besides the benefits that they have of learning what it's like to become a process chemist or a medicinal chemist or a computational chemist, there's lots of different um, types of roles that they can be part of. As an enterprise of Merck, there's also just uh, phenomenal support for all of the interns, and they have a lot of networking opportunities, a lot of career development. And so I think besides becoming a more e better equipped chemist for your future role, I think you also just learn about how to you know, navigate um, the workforce, too. Absolutely. And that network ends up being really useful down the line, even if it's not oh, yeah. you know, back here. I mean, it's one of the things that I think we probably undervalue is certainly as undergraduates, you get to build a network with the people that you're studying with. But beyond that, that's usually not very big. So we actually followed up with uh, Geraldo and, and asked him about his Merck Future Talent experience. And, you know, we asked him, you know, why he decided to pursue the internship in the first place and, and asked him what the best part of his experience was. So we'll play you the clip here. As a graduate student interested in a career in process chemistry, what really motivated me to pursue an internship was one, the desire to experience firsthand what working industry is like, and two, to learn more about the motivations and goals behind the different projects process chemists work on. 
I also wanted the opportunity to connect with industrial chemists and talk about their careers and experiences in their fields. For these reasons, I was encouraged to apply to Merck's Future Talent Program by different colleagues at Merck, by friends that have participated in the program previously, and very importantly, by my research advisor. Honestly, I had an amazing experience during my internship at Merck, which makes it very difficult to choose the best part. However, if I had to choose, scientifically speaking, being able to develop new approaches for solving chemistry problems and to publish the work that I did with Caleb were definitely, definitely two of the major highlights of the summer. But on a more personal note, having the opportunity to chat with a diverse group of chemists about their trajectories in life made me confident that I could become a successful process chemist as well all while building a network of professionals I can look up to. Okay, Caleb, fun is over. Just kidding. (laughs) Uh, So let's dive into the reaction. Transition metal catalyzed cyanations, as we have um, alluded to before, aren't necessarily new, but there are a lot of, I think, unique um, aspects to the chemistry that you developed. Um, And so can you um, let us know what problem you were trying to solve and why that was? Sure. We hinted at this earlier with just how the problem came to be. Um, what we were really trying to solve, just to like recap, is that these these reactions are largely heterogeneous. Um, part of the heterogeneity is the reductants themselves, often nickel, uh, sorry, zinc or manganese to reduce these nickel catalysts. Those are going to need to be activated or in the lab, you could basically rely on your stir bar to chip up the surface, which isn't going to happen on scale when we move to overhead stirring. So we were looking at new ways to reduce these nickel catalysts. And this is, you know, perhaps um, a little salesmanship and sweeping something under the rug, because what we're not solving here here. is the problem that uh, the zinc cyanide itself is also still out of solution. So when I really started this, I got the hit. I was like, well, we, we solved the soluble reductant part of this. Um, and then when Geraldo came in, he was just like, I think we can make this look a, a little better here. Let's stick a phase transfer catalyst in and start to bring that um, zinc cyanide into solution. And so now, now we're starting to address both issues here. Um, the you know, homogenous source of cyanide as well as a homogenous reductant in this case. And so I think this is starting to move the bar in the right direction. Um, you know, but still still not quite there. I mean, I think that, you know, we can still envisage ways to improve cyanations. So in the in the paper, I mean, I guess I have a few follow-ups there. One is, um, and, and I guess we'll probably follow up a little later talking about the zinc cyanide um, or the cyanide being being non-soluble, and I suspect there's a balance there. But in terms of the nickel precatalyst, you know, there's a table in the paper. You begin screening this reaction. You looked at several nickel phosphine precatalysts. Um, would you say that the reactivity of all of these was relatively similar, or were there sort of key differences that that stood out? Um, and you know, h- how much of that was really just due to the sort of aryl halide component, or are there like interdependencies between the reductants and the substrates? That's a good question. We did a bigger screen on a, so in our, in our initial studies, we were basically just using a pre-catalyst um, generic bidentate phosphine looking for any hits 
with a focus on the reductants. So we get two hits. One is a silane and one is the um, Dabco trimethyl aluminum complex. With the silane, we had done a pretty extensive ligand screen showing that what it seems to be is that these bidentate phosphines, particularly DPPF and xanthos, are the best at performing a nickel catalyzed cyanation. Um, and that's what you see in the literature for this as well, is that those two seem to be particularly good at this transformation. And so we didn't go as broad on the aluminum work, namely because I don't think that that has to do with the reduction of the pre-catalyst to the active catalyst, but just the actual oxidative addition reduction okay. elimination itself. So, so we were focused for these on the pre-catalyst that you see, which were the pre-complexed nickel to phosphanes, noting again that DPPE and DPPP lack the reactivity that you see with DPPF. Mm. Um, and so, so these two, those two ligands seem to be at least with um, specter reactivity. So I guess the way to think the about effective. I guess the way to think about this is probably much in the same way that you would think about any other phosphine enabled transition metal catalyst. Like there's some bite angle at some point that makes this work and that, it probably helps to have two coordination sites filled so you don't like form a bunch of cyanates that just precipitate out a solution. And and I think that that's almost exactly, you, you hit it earlier on the, you tend to poison your catalyst with cyanide where it's like you want that bite angle just right so that you can affect the reaction before you, know, you immediately start poisoning it. So I think that the role of tetrabutyl ammonium bromide was kind of interesting. It's a phase transfer bringing the, um, I guess, solubilizing the cyanide, if you will. Was there any optimization of that PTC or did you find that, you know, TBAB was just the sweet spot? They kind of all, just as far as the tetrabutyl ammoniums is basically okay. what we started at. And it's, you know, tetrabutyl ammonium chloride and tetrabutyl ammonium iodide also work there is a i we didn't notice it here but i had noticed it on a previous project that say if you use tetrabutylammonium chloride when trying to do one of these reactions with an aryl bromide you can tend to send maybe let's say you're using 10 percent of tetrabutylammonium chloride you can send about 10 percent of your aryl bromide to an aryl chloride. And if that's not lucky Ooh. enough to then participate in the reaction, you kind of take a yeah. guilt hit there. So partly, we didn't see that, but it has behooved me to match that counter anion in the past. Um, you can use, and I think we'll get to, because it's ultimately the role, we think, to make some in situ tetrabutyl ammonium cyanide. But if you have too much cyanide right at the beginning before the catalyst cycle really gets going, you, you do run the risk of poisoning the catalyst immediately. So putting in some TBA cyanide is a bit risky. It's such an interesting, yeah, interplay between all of these different, you know, you don't, you can't, it's like a Goldilocks, like you can't add it too soon. I don't yeah. know, it's a, that's the wrong analogy, Did but when I was reading your paper, it kind of came across that way. Yeah, I wonder, did you see a correlation between the nickel catalyst loading and the tetrabutyl ammonium bromide? So like, like if you start putting too much of one or the other, you sort of end up in a place where you poison the catalyst. Like if you were to go at really low loadings of nickel, would you need to drop the tetrabutyl ammonium bromide loading as well? Yes, you'd need to drop that a little bit because we did know it doesn't quite 
shut down the reaction, but it definitely like slows and stalls it when you start increasing the amount of tetrabutyl ammonium bromide. And you can see that in a um, more, I guess it's an experiment, not necessarily a control, but if you just put a stoichiometric amount of tetrabutyl ammonium cyanide in from the beginning, that you get about 1% yield. It, it's not going mm. to convert because you immediately poison it. So you do hmm. need it lower. Um, so yeah, if you were dropping the catalyst loading, you, you would need to start reducing the ratio of tetrabutyl ammonium bromide as well. The um, the paper shows a really nice scope. I guess when you were exploring the scope, were there any substrates that you found were like surprising that they worked, or any substrate classes that you know you wish you could have tapped into? Yeah, I mean, some of this we could have kept going. I think some of it's due to the. But that's a good thing the... too, right? Sometimes <laughs> you know the substrate tables of a hundred you know examples maybe aren't needed. Yeah, we did find, and I think that it's due to the. You know, we're using DPPF and Xantfos is the only other one that works. So pretty large ligands here. Um, we can tolerate an orthomethyl group. Um, as soon as you get start getting a little larger than that, or even put two orthomethyl groups, this reaction is shutting down. It, it okay. really doesn't take uh, much around the um, ox site of oxidative insertion to handle. So it, it would be nice to be able to handle some more sterically um, accessible substrates but i guess if you wanted to make those you would just change your strategy and install the larger group after you've installed the nitrile but potentially those, those tend to be like what didn't really work here we were worried about some of the functionality being that we have trimethyl aluminum in there and that is a competent methyl nucleophile but because we're using catalytic amounts to just um, activate the catalyst that does not seem to be a big issue in this reaction yeah hmm good to know um, so since joining Merck, I would say you've probably established yourself as a cyanator within <laughs> process chemistry. I, I couldn't resist. Um, so I noticed that you also have another nickel-catalyzed uh, protocol. Um, however, you're using a different phosphine and a different reductant. Can you contrast uh, these two approaches for us? Yeah, this is, yeah, it just happened to be this way because we found two new hits, um, one on the silane, one on the trimethyl aluminum. Um, so this work with Renee Siffery from the Catalysis Center um, centered around using PMHS, polymethyl hydrosiloxane, as the reductant. We pursued this one first. I, I was quite interested in this reaction because PMHS is basically um, a byproduct of the silicon industry, so it's essentially waste. And so then you're reusing that into a nickel-catalyzed cyanation. So you're greening up the chemistry from palladium to nickel. You are effectively, you know, using a waste byproduct. So making that more or less. It's pretty cool as well. Um, so I like the strategy. It's quite cheap. And additionally, what we found is that, you know, whether or not it's the loadings of the PMHS or it is like a silicon polymer. So maybe it is some type of micellar polymer protection or something. These reactions are very robust. You can set the whole thing up under air, uh, seal it and heat it under air and your nickel catalyst never dies. It runs to completion. So it's quite a nice transformation. Uh, you had mentioned the phosphine. We just found initially that the Xantphos, you know, 
worked slightly better than DPPF, so we went with it. Um, for the paper with Geraldo that we've been talking about today, went for the DPPF, um, one, because it was comparable to Xanthos, and two, because you can just buy the nickel chloride DPPF complex pre-complexed, and so it's just one less thing to weigh out when you're trying to say that this is an easy method to run. You can just load it all in at once. So I'd say these are complementary methods. The PMHS is very robust. If you want to just set something up right outside of the hood, no glove box, no sling technique, go for the PMHS, provided your substrate can tolerate the harsher reaction conditions because you do have to beat on it a bit. These work at 90 and above Ooh. exclusively. Um, whereas on the Dibal um, trimethyl aluminum complex uh, paper, it's it generally proceeds better um, when it's at 65, but we found some of the substrates will start to even go above 50% yield at like 30 C. So some of these are, that, that reaction can work um, quite well under milder conditions, but you do have to, it's, it's not robust to air. It must be, you know, Schlenk technique and glove box. That's great. Um, yeah, so thanks for uh, diving a little bit deeper into that. I believe you're, um, other paper with the reductant was, was that a JOC note in 2022 as well? It was, that one may have been late 2021. It's, okay. it's we'll, early 2022. We'll drop it in the comments. They can just, yeah. folks can scroll down and find it there. Thank you, Caleb, so much for being on the podcast. I think that that concludes today's episode. Elsie, are there any last dying questions that you have for Caleb? No, I will save all of my Iron Bowl football questions for an offline conversation next time I grab coffee with Caleb. Fabulous, fabulous. Okay, Caleb. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you, Geraldo, as well. And um, thank you to our listeners. We'll catch you next time on the Farm to Table pod. Thanks for listening to the Farm to Table podcast. This would not have been possible without our fabulous producer, Mark Partridge, and listeners like you. Be sure to check our episode credits where you'll find more details about the show as well as links to anything that we've discussed during the show. If you find yourself craving even more info, you can find us both on Twitter. I am at Danny the Chemist, and Elsie can be found at, at, at Dr. Elsie Squared. But of course, our show also has a handle, and that is at Farm to Table Pod. Farm with a PH, in case you were wondering, where you'll find some behind the scenes action, future episodes, and sneak peeks, and likely some random posts, posts about chemistry, snacks, and where, whatever else. Of course, uh, we'd love to hear from you, so please uh, interact with us on Twitter. Feel free to post any chemistry papers, Merck chemistry papers that, uh, that you found particularly memorable and that maybe you want us to build an episode around. So stay tuned, folks.